I am really excited to be here today with Mark Lefevre, and uh, we're going to talk all things Jordan Peterson and the intersection of Jordan Peterson and John Verveke. John might not, John might not like to think there is one, but <laughs> and, uh, and especially the four P's or the five P's of knowing. And Mark, ordinarily I would have you tell your story, but since you were just on Paul Vanderclay's channel and told your story, which is very interesting, I'm gonna put a link to that in the um, description part of the channel. And um, I'm gonna let you kind of start with anything that you wanna say about Jordan Peterson, John Verveke, and then, and then you can share your screen with your, um, well, maybe, maybe you could just tell us why that particular thing struck you as interesting, the, the P's of knowing and um, how you came to develop your, your graphic for it. Sure, thank you. It's, it's uh, exciting to be here and be talking about these issues. Um, I, you know, like most people sort of fell into Jordan Peterson, right? And then I'm just, I just absorbed all of it, right? I was, I was uh, taking care of my mother who had cancer at the time, you know, just to give a brief overview. And, and, you know, I was working kind of remotely, but I had plenty of time on my hands, basically, right? And to keep from worrying, you know, you watch videos on the internet. Um, and, and so, you know, I was absorbing all that material on the internet the, the, right when the rise happened, just before he got really popular, in fact. And you know, the, the, this sort of thing grew up around his work, right? Jonathan Peugeot got in touch with him. And then Jonathan's talking about, you know, the symbolic world, which, you know, I would, I would recharacterize as the parabolic world or something, right? It's, it's very, it's very along those same lines. And I, you know, I, I, Jordan's at the University of Toronto and so is John Verveke. And they, you know, they know each other, obviously. And like, like probably everybody else, like a lot of people have a love-hate relationship with with Jordan Peterson for various reasons, not all the same. Um, but but that's how I became interested, you know, in it, in watching, you know, I watched Maps of Meaning and I was like, wow, this is, you know, really powerful. It sort of takes you on, if you take it seriously, a shadow integration almost. And then that's like a very powerful experience. And you learn a bunch of things along the way, or, or maybe for me, it was, a, it was a couple of things he said that I was like, I know that's true. I've been saying it for years. He's the only other person I've ever heard talk about these things, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, wow, what, you know, what's that? And then I saw w roughly what he was doing, right? He's, he's, he's taking these people and he's showing them this path, right, out of the, the rigid scientific way of thinking and off into the more symbolic way of thinking, if we want to use Peugeotian terms, I guess, um, for it, right? Uh, to, sort of towards the symbolic world and the importance of it. And, and you know, when, when he did his biblical lecture series, I mean, I was just enraptured. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a very religious person. So, you know, you kind of know, whatever, you get soaked in the Bible, right? Like this biblical, it's everywhere, right? In the US anyway. And, to hear his interpretations, and especially something like um, uh, like Cain and Abel, right? Because it's such a short story, and he like he goes on and on about it, and it's all there, and it's very uh, interesting. But he's pointing at something, right? He's he's pointing at at a hard to get sort of maybe impossible to properly grasp with language 
set of concepts or, or there's something behind what he's saying. And, you know, he's got this great skill of, of giving you that direction, right? And like, oh, there's something over here that you're missing, but it's tied into what you're doing and who you are. And so that's sort of, you know, my conception is he's pointing at meaning, right? He's aiming you in the direction of meaning and getting you in touch with this possibility that there's more in the world than just the things you interact with physically or materially. And, and that's where, uh, you know, I guess the YouTube algorithm just kind of sent me to John Pervicki's site. And I had seen, you know, John Pervicki and Jordan Peterson did a thing, right? And that was very good, interesting. It was interesting to watch the parallel tracks they're on, right? Not, not quite intersecting, but not disagreeing. And yeah, it was a very strange but wonderful uh, talk. And you can tell they're, you know, they're both really honest and really trying to get at something right? And they're wrestling with each other in a good way, right? They're struggling in a good way around each other's concepts. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting. And then John does this wonderful series. I mean, it's just amazing. And I realized, uh, you know, that he was really setting the framework to allow us to talk about meaning as such. And really giving, uh, setting up all of the the things that you would need to have conversations and have sophisticated understandings of these things without going through, you know, philosophy of the ancient Greeks, which I'm not going to read. Uh, so <laughs> I read slow and this is hard and I have enough books I'm not reading, right? So, you know, it, it, John's able to get the essence down. And then the, uh, the other thing he did was, uh, you know, the, the pragmatic side, which was his meditation series. And I sort of, you know, I tell some of this on, on Paul's channel, but I sort of as a lark was like, well, you know, I, I want to support the guy. He gave me 50 hours of lectures for free. And like, I kind of feel I owe it to him to you know, support his channel. And, uh, but I'd been meditating my whole life. So I was like, yeah, whatever meditation. Yeah. There's, these things are a dime a dozen. Occasionally I dive back in and I go, ah, what, yeah, I see what they're up to. Uh, but John's meditation series is really amazing. And and uh, it was really amazing working with the with the people on the live YouTube chat and you know helping to build the sangha, and and you know that was something that turned out to be important to John. And but but then you're seeing this intersection because in the meditation series, even if you just go through the lessons, uh, although the Q and A's are John when John does Q and A's, they're great. Uh, you see this uh, this language forming right and this image forming around these meaning concepts. Like, the ground of being, right? He talks about that. He talks about, um, you know, in the practices is a practice where he's sort of uh, resurrected the uh, Catholic Lectio Divina tradition and modified it a bit, right? To make it a little bit more accessible to, to people who are allergic to God, we'll say. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we even, you know, we have a Discord server that, that the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis Discord server that we've been experimenting with and building new practices with. I mean, we meditate on there every day, right? And so, you know, that was very formative, very formative for me. But, but you see these practices and the scaffolding that John's giving you around the language and this sort of science of meaning, if you will. And it makes it easier to talk to people about, you know, deeply what they're feeling and, and what they think and grasp these things that sort of Peugeot is talking about and Peterson points to in a way. And it, and it sort of occurred to me that, 
you know, basically Jordan Peterson's doing something deliberate and specific in his work, right? That's what his Maps of Meaning course really is. I don't know about the book. Again, not going to read it. Too long, didn't read. <laughs> you got to read it because the lecture series really only gets at maybe 20% and it's just the, just a little oh, really? bit of cream skimmed off the top, but the whole substance, there's no way he can get at that in his lecture series. Really? Oh, well, I, I, yeah, I, maybe I'll check it out. That's, and, and I have a long list of books like, now. Yeah, I'm like you, I'm a, I'm a very slow reader, especially when it's very difficult. And this book is very difficult, but if you can persist, even, I would say if you can persist even for 30 or 40 pages, and I was doing about two pages a morning, <laughs> I was putting in an hour and a half to two hours of reading every morning. I got up at 5 a.m. every morning for about six months, and every morning I would do about two to three pages of that book because it makes you think about so many things. Because mm. the way he writes, even one sentence just blows up the whole world to you. Every sentence is a combinatorial explosion of meaning. And, and, and so there was something about reading that book. Well, two things happened. I've talked about this before. One is that reading the book started to rewrite my brain a little bit because I found that I could understand more difficult things, the more difficult things I put myself to reading. And the second thing was, I realized at a certain point, oh, this exactly maps over onto my framework of the way the world works based on the elements and principles of design that I learned through a creativity course that I've been through eight times. So creativity turns out to be the center of meaning, <laughs> right? So, um, so the whole thing started to map for me and then all of a sudden the whole book just opened up to me. So then as I was mm. reading it, I'd read a difficult sentence and I would go, oh, that's just like this other thing. And it would map on. And, and so I was able to make my way through the whole book much more easily after that. But still, it's a very dense book. So it really makes you think hard about things, about a lot of things. And much more so than the lecture. When you hear the lectures, yeah, you can kind of free associate as you listen, but it's coming at you like, meaning coming out of a fire hose it's just so constant you can't absorb it as you go right and so you're only taking in a certain amount so you're just get you're just skimming the surface but this is why I, one of the reasons i think verveke has a lot of disagreements with jordan is he's probably never read the book because once you read the book and you start to see what he's really getting at i don't know how you can disagree with him <laughs> yeah yeah I mean, that's yeah like kind of where i'm at you know yeah, that's interesting. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'll take the time to check. Yeah, that book. Yeah, it's just you know you hear his description of how he wrote it, and you're like, I don't know if I want to read something that carefully written. <laughs> it's that sounds deep and difficult. Well, one thing that you can do, and he recommends this when he when at the beginning of the book he says, I've set this up so that in a certain typeface at the beginning of every chapter there's a paragraph that is a summation of everything in the paragraph. So when you begin reading the book, read that set of paragraphs at the beginning of every chapter all the way through the book before you try to read the book really then go back and start the book because then you'll have the big picture so now if you don't want to read the book the other thing you can do is read that set 
at the beginning of every chapter. And then when you get to the end of the book, about the last four pages is a massive zip file of the entire book. So if you read those four pages, and if you have enough of an understanding of what he talked about in the lectures, as he threads his argument through those last four pages, it opens up all those lectures to you. So every sentence you hear, every sentence you read, for me, it would open up a chapter of the book. Yes, mm. I remember his, I remember how he went through that chapter and how he made, so it's just like these little zip bombs that just keep opening up all the way through. So the last four oh, or five pages. So you could probably get most of the book by just reading his recommended summary and then the last four or five pages. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know about that that little feature. I've asked a number of people about the book, and they didn't uh, they didn't mention that. So yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll get a copy and try that I out. I feel like he wrote the whole book like this, and his point was that when you got to the end, it would start to unspool again at the end, and then open up like that. So it's like in your mind, it goes in and then it opens up. Mm, that's it. That's interesting. Yeah, we have a lot of people talking about that on our Discord server, for example. A lot of people are, even John Vervicki seems to be on about the language, right? Everyone's very careful about the language. I think it, I think that it's somewhat of a red herring, right, as a problem. But yeah, it, it, language is interesting. And, and you know, I, I, Jordan's a pragmatist, right? So, you know, he's just showing you how to do the thing with the lecture series, right? Showing you how to and you know it sounds like he's setting up the book so that it does a thing to you right it's it's an interactive it's a participatory experience we'll say and that was a nice thing about john's work is that you know the first the 50 hours from awakening from the meaning crisis is well worth your time if you can follow it but if you can't or you don't want to like i still feel tricked i i can't Thing. I watched them every week. I didn't realize there were 50 of them, and therefore that's a year, or I would never have done it. So I, I remember <laughs> how I, angry I was when I heard I they had done something. You into reading, into reading Jordan's book. You're tricking me into reading Jordan's yeah. book. Ah, just read the first part in the last four pages. You'll be fine. Well, on Twitter the other day, Jordan Peterson, somebody asked him the question, why did you write Maps of Meaning, and why did you write 12 Rules for Life? Because they're so different. And his Twitter answer was, one, I was trying to solve a problem. He wrote Maps of Meaning to solve a problem. And two, I'm showing you how to execute the solution. Mm, so, right. so Maps of Meaning was him solving the problem. But in my mind, if you only look at how to execute the solution and you don't have the deep underlying structure of what his question was initially and how he went about solving that, finding the answer to that question, you won't really understand what he's all about. Oh yeah, I can, I can believe that. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, John's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis is like similarly like, oh, this is just problem formulation stuff. Like how do we, it's not even problem formulation, how do we get a vocabulary to talk about the problem formulation really? Yeah. I mean, he's yeah. talked about this before when he talks about uh, the religion that is not a religion, for example, he says, oh no, the step one's problem formulation. It's like, wait a minute, you did awakening from the meaning crisis, that's 50 hours, and you didn't do a problem formulation yet. Like what, you, because it's a big problem. Like what? 50 hours is just the setup to talk about the problem. What a big problem, and and I, I think it is. Like I think that when people talk about the meta crisis or the game A, game B people, or you know mm -hmm. any of those folks, I think they're talking about roughly the same thing. 
Mm -hmm. And I mean, I could be wrong about that, but boy, do I see a lot of parallels with these universes. Oh, yeah. there's, there's just intersections everywhere. Yeah. Right. And so I, you know, I view, I view, um, well, you can just watch the first two and a half minutes or so of, of Paul's thing because he put a teaser in, right? I view this whole thing as, you know, Peterson's got this pragmatic approach, but his pragmatic approach really fits into John Bravicki's science of meaning, right? And so you can really approach it and understand it uh using john's terminology quite nicely and then when john goes into the meditation series now john's saying look here's what i do like you know here's the 50 hours that's great here's what i do and then we have a lot of people on the on our discord server on awakening from the mean crisis discord server for example who just come in for the meditations they haven't done the 50 hours and we tell them man if you want to do the 50 hours that's great we love it you don't need to do the 50 hours and we take it upon ourselves to kind of you're right 50 hours is a lot. We need to be able to explain some things to you without that, right? And and that's sort of where some of the work around the four Ps came from. And you know, we have a much larger set of models, actually. This is the focus right now is the four Ps for lots of very good reasons. It's kind of the center in some ways. Um, and it's also something we need to work through. Actually, I had a small breakthrough this morning. Uh, we'll find out how Manuel likes it. Because uh, we have a collaboration, like we have a collaboration doc just the notes doc is 135 pages and we have other docs so we've been working on this hard for months like we have a lot of stuff like we have this concept of historical grounding right and then you're standing on that that's the you know that's how things have unfolded through time that has worked over time like just from an evolutionary perspective and then that allows you to aim into the future right to use the the peterson terms right and so you're standing on the historical grounding you're able to aim into the future you know you have an intention right you, you we have an archer pull, he pulls his bow back intention right and that's your ability to work but also your your proclivity to work your aim right and then you aim you know for the highest point basically and you you don't aim down though because if you aim down indiscriminately, you will destroy the ground that you're standing on. And that's really important in our model um, because what that does is you have no place to stand from, but also you can't reach up. If you're not on stable ground, you can't reach up to greater things. And I think part of you know my conception is, uh, you know, you talk about meaning crisis and I think the meaning crisis is a loss of meaning, right? And I, I think that's the easiest way for most people to think about it. And then, you know, then, well, well, what is it meaning? Like, do we, do we find it? It's like, do we go outside? And then like, you know, we're looking around in the bushes and we pull back some leaves and, and like, there's a meaning and you just kind of pick it up and, and now you have it. No, no, <laughs> right. That's having mode stuff. As John would say, this is having mode. It's being mode. Well, what is it? What does it mean to, to being mode? in you know with meaning like what does that mean where where is the meaning and how do we get it in the in the being mode well i think i think that's where it's co-creation i think that's the key i think that you know the reason why you know you talk about oh i've got this design course and then i overlay this meaning book on it yeah yeah because when you're doing design when you're creating art that's creation and meaning is co-creation Right, because you're, yeah, I mean, you're not creating, it's, it's not you doing the creation. You don't wave a magic wand and boom, like co creation, right? It's co creation for a reason. Like you're creating with something, with nature, with the greater, the, the greater frame of nature, something like that, right? 
And like, I, I don't know, right? I'm, I'm you know, well, I, Christians that, would use that, God, right? That's one of the things that's so fascinating about the way that the design elements and principles map onto it is that um, it also is a framework. And because I've thought, I've been thinking about this set of design principles for probably 15 years, most of my waking hours, there's some part of that that's rolling around in my head and thinking about how it scales to every aspect of existence from the very smallest atomic or very smallest quantum particle all the way up to the, the size of the universe and right down through human consciousness and life and it, it scales through everything. So that's peculiar. Yeah. Right. And, and so, and, and as I think about these things all the time, and then I start seeing how this maps of meaning is the same kind of thing where what he's talking about, where, where those things intersect, those are the points at which everything scales all the way down. And it scales through every domain of knowledge. It scales through every um, aspect of human relationship, it scales through every aspect of human cognition. It scales through every aspect of um, reality. And like, wow, that's, that's pretty cool, you know. And once I got engaged with that, then that's what I do on my channel is I explore that idea with people who know a lot more than I do about biochemistry and physics and um, neuronal states and you know whatever wherever I can look, I can talk to people and I can explore what they do and how they think about things and I can see whether or not it's actually scaling. And sure enough, it is. And and I watch all these YouTube videos from experts talking about various things and yep, it's right there, the whole thing. It just scales all the way through. But like you said, I've got, I've probably got six, seven, 800 pages of notes. Just, but it's, it's coming so fast to me and I'm throwing it over here and over there and I've got these, pot, I'll never get through it. You know, nobody will ever be able to make anything out of it. And it's all inside my head, so it's kind of hopeless <laughs> oh no you'll 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 plug through it it'll get it'll get simpler in your mind I'm it sure. does yeah yeah i mean it's certain certain principles are showing up and those principles are just crystal clear and and they answer a lot of questions so yeah it's a very interesting pursuit i, I love to say jordan outsourced the problem when he wrote maps of meaning he basically outsourced the problem and now there's all these people out there even if they don't know how they at first discovered the problem, even if whatever they heard from Maps of Meaning was peripheral to them, they're all working on the problem. Yeah. And then somehow we're all gathering in these little communities and we're working on the problem together. And because uh, it's a big yeah, problem. It's a big problem. Yeah, you touched sort of on a couple of interesting concepts there, this idea of scale invariance. Right, we have a scale. Nassim Taleb talks about this in his all of his books are great. Uh, he has a website, foolbyrandomness.com. I think you can read all his stuff for free on his website, even. Um, but uh, like, I have all his books. I, I got onto him early through. I was doing some stock trading stuff uh, with a friend of mine, uh, and I, I happened onto his book before he got popular. I, I got fooled by randomness before Black Swan came out and like blew up the world to some extent. But 
the the other concept you sort of touched on, and um, you know, it's interesting that all these things sort of blend together, is is not just scale invariance, um, but outsourced cognition, right? This idea of this collective cognition, and yeah, when you when you get these frameworks for people, when you give somebody a science of meaning, as John Dravaki has so brilliantly done, now you can outsource that cognition. Like this was the you know, I talk about it in the video with Paul. Like, this is the thing. This is the big realization. Like, wow, I don't have to do this alone anymore. <laughs> I can actually communicate with people. And they can help to talk about scale invariance and the Pareto principle. Taleb was on that ages ago. And anti-fragile. He's got a book called Anti-Fragile, right? Mm -hmm. He sort of coined that term. You know, people were on to this, the different pieces. And now they're sort of, to your point, they're all coming together and coalescing in, we'll say, different corners of the internet or whatever. And yeah, it's it's sort of a very powerful uh, place to be in. And it's a very interesting world because Taleb talks about the bad statistics and Peterson talks about, you know, uh, the bad uh, formulation of of our conception of how things unfolded, we'll say through history or as a result of evolution, right? He does a little bit of both. And then along comes John Verveke and wow, now we've got this whole framework and all these words and this precise terminology to use. So now we can communicate. And then he's got a bunch of practices and he's trying to work through the practices, right? He calls it the schematization of the ecology of practices. Um, I hope I'm not butchering that, John. Uh, but, but, you know, we're, we're working on that, right? And well, how do we know like what types of meditation or there's moving practices that like Rafe Kelly does this parkour thing? Like what's that about? Like, how do we classify these things? All that's been outsourced as a result of, of having this uh, this whole uh, ethos around meaning now and, and the science around meaning, it's, it's very helpful. And then what we've been doing is we've been sort of fitting things into, into the model. So this idea of scale invariant properties or patterns, that's the parabolic way of knowing. And then, you know, we've modified John's way of knowing. Our, our, our goal is very different, right? John's the director of cognitive science at the University of Toronto, right? So he cares a lot about cognitive science, as he should. That's what he does. Uh, I don't do cognitive science. Uh, I don't. I don't have any schooling, so I'm not qualified to do anything. So, so, and and I did make a drawing. So yay, yay, Mark. Uh, but but you know, I talk about these things, and I, I, you know, I was like I said, I was very involved with the Sangha as he was doing the meditation course. And I'm involved in the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis Discord server, right? Because we're trying to build community and get people into practices. Don't worry about the 50 hours. Come meditate with us, right? And and have experiences with us and and do this group like the Divina practice that we that we a bunch of people Ben and and Brett and myself worked on and Manuel. A lot of people working on these things. Philosophical fellowship is another thing John talks about. We're working on these things. We're trying to formalize them and get. And more importantly, get people involved, like come and do this stuff with us and see how you feel. Right. And, you know, we've got some Buddhists, we've got some Christians, we've got, you know, some agnostics, we've got some atheists, we've got some nuns, right. All kinds of different, different people uh, involved, but they you know, they're coalescing around these practices. And, you know, we're hoping to get more. We, we've got this uh, meaningcommunity.com website that we're soft launching. We're trying to get that rolling. We're making a lot of changes to it as we go, but we're trying to get people involved and and it, it just looks like the the you know our re uh, rejiggering if you will of the four p's is what sort of got us uh, on the map we'll say and you know got paul interested a bunch of other people interested in the gsp from the bridges of meaning server he 
he came and talked to uh, Manuel and I about this uh, whole thing. And then, you know, he, he's saying, like, I misunderstood it. I don't think he misunderstood a lot of it if he did at all. Like, he seems pretty dead on. And, and you know, it was my bad for not doing a slide first. I'm glad he did one because then I was like, oh, I've had this slide in my head and I finally got it out, you know, and, and put it down. And 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 because we're doing something different from John, you know, we're we're what we're trying to do is reverse engineer the meaning crisis, right? I, I didn't, you know, you, you sort of, you know, going about your daily thing and you're not really paying attention to like the world at large, if you're me, because you're kind of a loner, right? And then you realize, oh, all these people are in trouble, but they're in the kind of trouble that I got myself out of. And then it's like, well, it's a good question. How did I do that? And, you know, people would ask me from time to time and I had some practices. You know, I talk about things like Zen sweeping. If, if you've got a anxiety problem, you do something like literally like sweeping or doing the dishes with a lot of muscle memory and it helps your anxiety, it calms you down. A lot of people found that helpful throughout the years. And it literally takes that long to explain. People intuitively know what you mean and they try it and it works like remarkably well. So, so you know, but but I never really had a way to talk about it before, right? And now John's got this, this four Ps of knowing. And, you know, from our perspective, uh, ours is a little bit different, but but not much, right? And and uh, John's very attached to his model, and he's you know obviously he's he's a very gracious, wonderful person. So he he said like you know, you should do your thing, and you know I just don't want to pollute the science, you know on on my side. And yeah, fair enough. He that's that's his that's his well, baby. You and want, you want to put the put the graphic? Yeah, I can. Take a look I can at put it. it up. Yeah, we can go through it real quick. Well. Unless you're in a hurry, I've got, I've got nothing. not at all, not <laughs> okay. at all. Take yeah, so <clears throat> yeah, I've been experimenting with how to explain this, right? We've been explaining this to people, and it used to be a two and a half hour talk. I'd be pacing the room on the Discord server, <laughs> trying to explain this to people in various different ways, and uh, hopefully, I'm getting good at it or something. Um, it certainly seems that way. So we sort of started this whole thing from a signal processing model. And so we think of all of the information coming into your brain as just as pure signals, right? With amplitude and 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 volume, and and th those are the basic ideas behind what we're doing. And then we Struen, who is on Bridges of Meaning and on Awakening from Meaning Crisis Discord, he had this whole thing about the different sides of the brain and how it all interacts. And he has a model that collapses all of John's stuff down very interestingly. Um, he 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 doesn't like our model either because he because he fit everything to John's model so he's a little you know reticent on the whole thing but the left brain in, in our model does this discrete processing right and that's one type of math and I heard when you were talking with Jess you talked about the difference between geometry and calculus and you know I I I, I I'm not a math guy in fact I hate math I can't do multiplication division actually <laughs> just why I'm in computers because computers do it for you. Um, but when you're doing uh, data processing in computers, which I actually do a lot of, uh, there's discrete style processing in the math, and then there's continuous style processing, and they're different. And the thing about discrete is you can take it in steps. That's why it's, it's called discrete processing. And then that's your left brain. And then it occurs to us that, you know, when you're talking about the four Ps, that's propositional and procedural knowledge, right? Propositions are well-defined steps right they're things like oh this is this is a rock like this is a cup this is right you can e equals mc squared right this is a formula okay and then procedures are obviously steps that's pretty much how they're described it's a procedure it's a set of steps right in the, in a sequence um 
So that's all very discrete. And then we look at the propositional as objects and the procedural as actual navigation. And by navigation, we don't just mean like moving things around, but also the connections between things. And what we're doing is we're conceiving of all of that as linear. It's a very linear operation. Uh, and so all you can build with propositional and procedural knowledge is a closed-end world. That's, that's your only option. It's going to be closed and knowable. It may not be known because it may be too big for you to know, but it's not like if you wanted to go there, you could get there. And so to me, that sort of sounds a lot like what John calls reciprocal narrowing, right? Which is from one of his colleagues. And I apologize, I forget his name. He talks about him often uh, where he was doing work on addiction and he, he, he characterized it as reciprocal narrowing on the thing you're addicted to. And then, you know, how do you get out of that? Well, you know, we sort of look at the right brain as this continuous processing. And we have the participatory, John has that in his model, right? And I sort of, the easiest way to categorize it is sort of movement, right? Um, and, and how, but you can participate in conversations, right? How you interact is important. But then again, you know, you need a way to navigate that. And so rather than using perspectival for navigation, although it, it helps with navigation. I don't think that's the navigational element for participation. The navigational element for participation seems to be patterns. And so Manuel and I were talking to Mary Cohen a while back. We've had two talks with her, one, one back in August, more recently after her talk with John and Paul, uh, her two talks with John and Paul. And I, I played a little trick on Mary. I'm very sorry, Mary. Uh, I made her jump, right? Because I said, uh, you know, how do you introduce yourself to somebody, right? And I said, hello, my name is Mark. Nice to meet you. And then I screamed, <laughs> right? And, and then she jumped because she wasn't expecting that. But if you think about it in terms of participation, that's not an invalid way to participate by any, like there's, you can't say that like screaming in the middle of something is invalid without calling out a thing. What are you making an appeal to when you say screaming in the middle of introducing yourself to somebody is inappropriate? You're making an appeal to it to to it to some kind of a pattern, right? Some kind of an invariant pattern. And the manifestation of the pattern may be different. So for example, when you meet somebody in Japan, you bow, right? When you meet somebody in the US, you shake hands. But all the cultures have that pattern. It's manifested or implemented differently. But the pattern is there. And then you can look at other things. Let me add something here that sure. may illuminate something for you. In, in design principles, in art, and when we talk about creativity, there is something called the order of seeing. So the design elements and principles were not created by anybody to determine how to put together a painting. They were observations made by people over the entire life of history as to what people see when they look at a painting. Right. So, so you see these certain elements and principles in every work of visual art, in every work of musical art, and you see these operating. But when the viewer looks at a painting, the first thing that they see is the value contrast. The second thing that they see is the patterns. And then only after that do they notice the color. Mm. So a lot of people, when they paint, they think, oh, color is the most important thing. Or the line is the most important thing. No, the value pattern 
is the most important thing. And not only the value pattern, but what the ratio is of dark to light in the work. It can either be majority light and minority dark or majority dark and minority light. And it has to be a visually appealing value pattern to capture the attention. And once the attention is captured, then you notice the pattern. Now, when you screamed, the first thing that happened was some value thing went off in Mary's head. And then she might notice, oh, this doesn't fit the normal pattern of normal human relationship. But the right. first thing is the value thing. So when you are comparing the patterns of, say, Japanese society versus the patterns of American society, polite behavior and so forth, there is a value structure within those systems of the reason we have this pattern is because this is what we see as good. There's a value structure underneath it. It's not accidental. People develop patterns because of a value structure. So the value structure comes first. Yeah, yeah, it's not accidental and it's not arbitrary. Right? Yes. So then you can go into the postmoderns, think everything's arbitrary. And it's like, no, right? You go back to Peterson and you say, look, we start embodied and that's how we interact with the world. We don't have a choice about that. That's how we're born. That's what it is. And so what does that do in terms of instilling values? And, you know, I don't know, but then you can jump to the work of John Vervegi and say, when you look up like this, your brain mode changes. We can see it with scientific equipment. That happens. And so part of his practice is actually has this looking up thing. Uh, and, and Peterson talks about that too. Look up, right? Look to the highest thing. So that's not a coincidence. Let, let me throw a real ringer in here because this is something I heard about when I was in my 20s and I thought that can't possibly be true. And then I tried it and it worked. So it made me think there's something there, but it's so weird that it's just almost like inconceivable. There was an, a book written back in the, I don't know, 70s or early 80s maybe that I picked up and it's called Your Body Doesn't Lie. You ever heard of it? No, I haven't. Okay. So the guy had some theories, weird theories. And uh, one of the ways that you test his theory is, <clears throat> he says, first of all, we shouldn't be wearing um, non-natural, we shouldn't be wearing synthetic fabrics because they affect our participation with the world. Okay, and the way you test this theory is you, you, you can do this to yourself or you can do it to, you, well, you have to have two people because you have to have somebody else help you. But let's say you have a test subject and you ask the test subject to put their arm out parallel with the ground and hold it as hard as they can so that it, you can't push it down. And the other person can try to push down that lever it requires a lot of force because if you're holding that arm out parallel, you've got a lot of strength there, upper body strength. Now, you put a plastic bag right on the top of the head here, just lay it flat on the top of the head, and you're holding this arm out, and you can't hold it up no matter what you do. They can just very small amount of force, down it goes. So I'm reading the book, and I tried this out on somebody, and sure enough, it works, and it's just so weird. So the next thing he says is, 
you shouldn't be putting things into your body that are bad for you. And like um, refined sugar is one of those things. You wanna know if it does this to you? You hold your arm out, you put a tiny bit of sugar on the tip of the tongue, you lose your upper body strength immediately. Mm. Then he says, rock music will do it to you too. If you're listening to classical music, you're strong as a rock. Nothing will move your arm. You put rock music on, instant degradation of your upper body strength. And so I used to do this as party tricks when we go to parties, because <laughs> nobody would believe it, you know? And, and one time we were uh, foster parents to a high school boy just for a few months while his parents were out of the state. And he's always listening to rock music in his room and his grades are just terrible and he's not getting his homework done. And, and I told him about this with the plastic bag on the head and he said, oh, you're nuts. And I said, well, I'll show you. And I showed it to him. And then I showed him the thing about the sugar on his tongue. So by this time he's hooked in. So then I said, you know, rock, rock music does it to you too. No way. So I showed him. Mm. He started listening to classical music. His grades went from a C to an A in just wow. a few months. Wow. So there's yeah. something weird about how we process signals that are outside of ourselves. You know, right. Rupert Feldrake talks about this a lot, and, and a lot of it's weird, but there's something in there somewhere. Oh, yeah. No, I, 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 the only reason why I can believe that is because uh, I went to a chiropractor a number of years ago, mm -hmm. and I had TMJ really bad. Mm -hmm. And I get done with the TMJ and I, and I knew like this guy's world famous. Right. And I, I knew uh, some stories and, you know, the guy who told me the story said, you're not going to believe any of these stories. I don't expect you to, but here's what happened. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't believe what you're saying. So I get done with the TMJ and he goes, um, do you need me to fix anything else? And I was like, you know, Hey man, you know, I got, I got this heart thing. I got atrial fibrillation. Like, you know, if you can fix that, that'd be great. So he does. And I was just like, Oh, and then they started to be like, well, we know what supplements you need. And I was like, how the hell would you know that? And they do these, they do that tests. They have a bu bunch oh, of tests. Yeah, yeah. They touch you at certain points mm -hmm. and you can't hold your arm up. And it's like, I don't know what that is, but, but it works. And it has something to do with direct participation in the world. And there's a paper out there. Um, uh, Tyler well, Hollett sent it to, he wrote, uh, about after that. After that book came out, that a, a lot of holistic practitioners started using that to test allergies. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So Tyler Hollett sent me a paper a while back about, you know, walking barefoot outside. Actually, mm -hmm. you can measure a difference. And I was like, wow, this is cool. You know, so there's there's some real science behind some of this stuff, mm -hmm. some of this participation with nature. And, and that's sort of what we're on about is when you lose the participation with nature, um, that seems to have something to do with uh, the lack of co-creation and therefore the lack of being able to create meaning uh, from the values that you already hold. The, the values are there, right? I think the postmoderns pretend like the values aren't there or they're arbitrary or you can do what you want with them, but there is something embodied that's happening. And even in John's work, especially in his meditation series, he talks about this and it's very powerful. I mean, he has this, this whole brush knees thing we were going over, we go over, we were going back over the lessons and he has a brush knees view use your arms and it's part of his walking meditation and it's really difficult like it's really hard to walk the way he's talking about um but 
there's something about it. It gets you into the flow state. It, you know, it seems to engender some kind of health or something. And it's that participation and that navigation in the parabolic realm, we think, navigation and connection again, because it's more than just, you know, than just navigating around, it's also connecting too. And there's something about that. Like, so if you think of it in terms of a parable, um, there's choices, right? And you get to see the different possibilities. There's lots of possibilities. It's not a linear connection in a parable. There's lots of connections you can make. You can kind of enter at one point, cohere to the parable at one point, and then like get out where you want, right? So it gives you a lot of choice without making participation combinatorially explosive, to use John's terms, right? You mm -hmm. don't you don't want to walk up to somebody and and like look up. Uh, People with autism, people on the autism spectrum have this problem. They don't know how to introduce themselves to people. They have no idea. There's way too many possibilities. Do I say hi? What do I say after hi, right? It's commentary explosive. Maybe they just don't have access to the patterns, right? They're not seeing those patterns clearly. And so they have problems participating with other people. Um, you know, I, I mean, I've had my problems participating with other people. It's sort of a miracle that I can talk to sort of strangers on the internet or on, on video. That's like amazing just from a personal growth perspective. I, had a, I still don't like to pick the phone and call people, even if I know them, if I've known them for years. It's like, how do I begin this conversation? How is it going to proceed, right? It's, there's all these things, right? And then, you know, I, I've noticed, you know, people go into buildings, they seem to know what to do. And sometimes I get a little confused, like, wait a minute, I don't have enough cues you know, signs aren't in the right place, damn it. You know, I don't, I don't like that. And so it, it's it's these patterns, that, you know, and different people pick up on different ones and we're, we're probably not even aware of it, right? In most cases. And then you listen to somebody like Jonathan Pajot and it's like, oh, I see these symbols and these patterns. And I know JP Marceau, who runs Jonathan's Symbolic World website, he was talking to John and they were talking about how once you're in the symbol, you can move up and down the symbol. And I was like, yes, yes, you can. We have this conception that symbols have multiple entry points and multiple exit points so that they're more accessible to more people. And it's one of those little things at the very end of the uh, Peterson-Sam Harris debates uh, at the very end, uh, you know, Peterson's basically telling Sam, to, you know, I'm going to uh, poorly paraphrase something like, you know, you're, you have this huge IQ and all these cool systems. And what if other people aren't smart enough to use your system, Sam, what do you do about them? And Sam's kind of like, you know, are you saying that people need religion because they're dumb? And I think Peterson just kind of left it as an open question. Well, look, some people are dumb. I'm sorry. I'm dumb about a whole bunch of things. So I would say everyone's dumb because we're all dumb about a bunch of things. We don't even know how dumb we are about things, right? And so, yeah, maybe we need easy to access systems, right? Maybe not everybody can be rigorously logical or rational or reasonable like that. that like here's the, I think here's the principle that's underneath that is that Sam is basically a, a collectivist in his thinking. He's basically a he doesn't see it, but he is. And yeah. he has this idea that that everybody could be equal somehow. Yes. And everybody could be equally, uh, there could be equal accessibility to what he's talking about for everybody. But then that would mean everybody was equal. But, right. But what's at the heart of the universe is difference. Right. Well, and, and evolution is all about difference. So I don't know how anybody ever gets there. I'm like, evolution means difference. That's it's yeah, evolutionary well, strategy is thing, for diversity. The other thing that's at the heart of difference is limitation. Because right. if, if 
two things are different, then one of them has a limit that the other one doesn't have. So At they least have relative to each other, yes. Yes, they have two different limits. So they're both limited in some way. So my limitations might keep me from knowing some aspect of Sam's thing, and your limitations might keep you from knowing some other aspect of Sam's things. And then we're both carrying an incomplete ideology. And when we have an incomplete ideology, it's going to become totalitarian. There's no other option because force is the only thing that holds together an incomplete ideology. Yeah. So because we all have limitations, there's, you know, that is, that's the path to destruction. And Jordan Peterson understands that better than anybody. I mean, he wrote yeah. a book on it. I, yeah, I agree. I think, and, and, you know, Sam Harris to me is propositionally and procedurally stuck. He's in a closed world. Mm -hmm. And one of the results we think of having a closed world is this idea of zero sum game. Because if it's a closed world, then all of the things in the world can be distributed evenly. And so you're going to naturally go to that idea that, oh, life is a zero sum game. Because I look around and I go, what universe are you living in that it's a zero sum game? You know, somebody created the iPhone. Like, you know, and Peterson yeah. makes this point, doesn't he, about, you know, a dollar? Everyone paid, paid uh, jobs a dollar or something. That's all. It wasn't that much. The rest of the money went elsewhere, basically. But yeah, I mean, it, it, was it worth it to pay one guy a dollar to invent the iPhone? Probably. Like, that seems like a pretty good deal. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, people don't understand those complex relationships because they're stuck with this closed world, which makes it very safe. When you're in a closed world, it's very safe. Like you can have a hundred percent prediction. Unfortunately, the real world isn't like that. Like evolution isn't like that. I don't know. They, they seem to have this conflict, right? Like these evolutionary people seem to treat it as intelligent design, which I find ironic. And the people who are actually following, say, uh, the, the Christian ethos or the Bible or something, seem to be living out evolution as though it's a real thing and and okay with the variation in the world. And you know, oh yeah, things are different that's cool. Like we're not, we're not bothered by it. Right. We don't care if somebody has more money than us or I, I, you know, I moved down South and I, um, I have, uh, I, I've been rather a fan of convertibles now. It's sort of, sort of the equivalent of, uh, of, of, uh, crack cocaine for me. I love convertibles now. And, uh, especially before I was down South, but especially now that I'm down South, cause it's a lot of top down time. And, I've been driving past and, you know, this, I, I, I live in the woods kind of, I'm on the outskirts of the city, but I really live in the woods and, you know, there's some people here who don't have cars. Like they don't think, you know, they live in a, in a shack and they don't have cars literally. And, you know, this one, one guy was in a, in the back of a truck. I've seen him a few times. It's on a road that I travel quite a lot to get home. And um, he would always wave and give me the thumbs up. And he was very happy that I had this car, right? It's a, it's a nice car. And when I was in New England, you didn't get quite so much of that. You got it, but it was a lot less frequent that people were happy for you, that you had something that, that they should be envious of or something, right? Like oh, the no, envy it's, it's turned into joy. They might, they might even have, they might not even be envious that you have it for you, but they think you should feel guilty that you have it because other people don't have it. That's right. Other right. Other people are like that. First impulse, because because then it's not even based on their own lack. It's based on what they perceive as the world lack, which of course is there. I mean, that's the only reason we have such a thing as economics is that because of scarcity. Right. And, and right. Yeah, that's a projection. Reality. You can't undo scarcity. Yeah, it's definitely a projection of some kind. And I think, in fact, you know, to tie it back to the model, 
if you're ignoring participation and the parabolic, participatory and parabolic ways of knowing, that's going to project back onto the way you act in the world, right? You're going to try to make the world equal, for example. Like that's what you're going to do because you're not really sensing the world as it is because that can only be done through participation, through direct participation to the earlier point, right? Natural fabrics, natural foods, walking barefoot, all of these things. And, and like getting to know your body, like it's amazing. John's moving practice, he's got the moving meditation practice as part of the meditation series. Like my seated, seated quiet, silent meditations went from, you know, really good because I'm, I've been meditating my whole life. Like it should be good, right? To really better, like, whoa. And, you know, kind of using good and better in meditation is a tricky thing because to me, it doesn't have first order effects, right? It's all about the second order effects. Um, but, but you know, the, the quality that you feel when you're in meditation seems to increase as a result of doing, say, the moving meditations in addition, because you're really getting in touch with your body. And it, it's so funny. We were talking about this this morning in our after meditation chat, which is our best part of our Discord server, in my opinion, um, where focusing on that meditative state, that meditative feeling from the sit while you're doing the moving meditation really helps, right? It, that's what unlocks this flow pattern that John talks about so much. And it's that flow that gives you that that kind of peace, that at oneness, uh, you know, and and that really seems to help people. People get a lot out of uh, the practices that John's given us, and I, like they've changed my life. I mean, there's so many things. He he, he talks about savoring. That's totally changed everything that I do. Right? I, it's 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 completely just transformed the way I interact with the world, and and enabled me to 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 do things and and work on this, and then. You know, the biggest difference between, say, like our model and John's model is because we move perspectival out as a way of knowing because, and John uses the term aspectualization. He's got a series called The World Not of Consciousness that he does with Greg Henriques. And I, I haven't finished it yet. I'm working on it, John. I'm working on it. Um, it's a, you know, it's a deep, it's a hard thing. They're, they're trying to work out psychology and consciousness and things like that. And it's, it's a difficult series, but they use the word aspectualization. And that's the equivalent of what we're calling perspectival capacity. And we think you need that because that's framing, right? That's what frames are. Uh, we think you need that in order to have knowing, right? Because it puts signals in formation, right? It forms them to a frame. And then that opponent processing, and, and this is so breaking news. This is from this morning, a few hours ago. I think that opponent processing on this on this slide, I'm, I'm now thinking that's rationality. And that's going to ruffle a lot of feathers because people want to see rationality as a magic bullet that fixes things. But I think rationality is a dangerous thing that people do to themselves. So if you have a piece of knowledge and your perspective can't hold that knowledge, you could reject it rationally. And I think that's what people do. I, I sort of I hinted at this, right? There's, there's things out there where I have conversations with people about, we'll say, a video on the internet that shows a certain behavior that is, we'll say, definite. Like there's no real way around it. Like this thing happened, and according to the laws on the books, this thing is shouldn't have happened, and and therefore we should investigate. And instead of instead of addressing that issue, because it, it's not a debatable thing that the video is there, you know, the person said what they said, or these things happen that happen, whatever it is, they'll go into this mode where they're like, either describe a video that isn't the video you both watched and agreed was the same video, or they'll say, oh, that's been debunked, or it's a deep fake. It's like, what? Oh, okay, maybe, but 
like, where's your evidence for that? And then they drop the evidence thing entirely. And they go into this mode about, no, that can't be true, right? They're just rejecting the facts as such. And, and, and uh, facts they previously agreed to, too. It's a, it's a really weird phenomena. And that's rationalization. Now, that's rationalization in the wrong direction. Like you're rationalizing something that is in, you know, in direct contradiction to your own beliefs from five minutes ago in some cases. Well, but, you, but, you know, you're trying Jordan, to rationalize it. When Jordan talks about what brought down, what, what caused the millions to die in the Soviet Union and in Nazi Germany, it's exactly that thing. It's what he calls um, being willing to accept the lie, being willing to live the lie. It's that exact moment when you're willing to deny the truth that's right in front of you because it's too painful or it doesn't fit with, with your structure, you know? I mean, people talk about cognitive dissonance and they, you know, they, they, throw, they throw that term around so wantonly, but it's a way bigger, way deeper problem than just, you know, a little bit of internet cognitive dissonance. And, um, but I want to clarify with you about when you talk, what you call perspectival capacity, because I want to see if it's what I've been thinking about for a long time. And I've been trying to find a word to describe it because to me, it's slightly different than perspective, but it's this idea that, um, I'm born with a certain internal structure. It already has little, little um, Velcro pieces on it that are just waiting for some data to come in. And the mother's role is kind of like data input for a long time. And as that data gets input, it's fitting into a cognitive structure that's already more than a cognitive structure. An, an, neural structure that's already there okay uh -huh. sensing and all of that your capacity and as you grow your own unique experiences the friends that you have and the movies that you see and the tv shows that you watch and the books that you read and the songs that you hear and sometimes you can hear a song 30 years later and you're transported back to the moment that you first heard it and not just the moment, but all the feelings that you had at the, you know, this is my own personal experiential DNA, so to speak, everything that makes up who I am at this moment, it can change. It's, it's an evolving thing, but whatever that structure is, that's inside of me. It's almost like an architectural thing that can be constantly built on and, and adopt, adapted. Is that what you mean when you say perspectival capacity? So that's kind of interesting. I, um, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Like what, you know, what is that and where does that sit? And then I don't know, I mean, we haven't done that level of analysis yet on the, on the model, right? because part of it's just about this reverse engineering, this meaning thing. And I, you know, we already have solutions, right? We already know how to, we already know what the, what the loss of meaning is. And, and, and roughly we need, just need to make the connection to the person. I think that like John would talk about that in terms of emanation versus emergence, right? So the emanations are sort of the structures that are already there and then things cohere to them. And then as things cohere, they hit some level and then there's an emergence. And, I think that, yeah, within the types of knowing, there must be, 
you must be preloaded, right? It's got to come from somewhere. And a lot of that has to be embodied because we're embodied creatures. And then how you interact with that, like is your perspective, like you have to come preloaded with some perspectives, with some frames, you have to, like there's no way around that. It's got to bootstrap somehow. And you see this in computers. If you do computer AI work, which I've done, um, yeah, I mean, you they call it bootstrapping because you have to bootstrap. And even in, in some of the simple non-AI math things, bootstrapping is a big deal, right? Even if you look at like Bayesian uh, uh, decision-making, right? You've got to bootstrap your a priori assumptions. Like there's bootstrapping is everywhere. You've got to start from somewhere. So I think there's an embedded set of systems. So maybe you come with a set of propositions and procedures, or maybe you, you know, you come with a proclivity towards them and then you develop them as you move in the world physically, right? And then maybe that, you know, that same thing happens with participatory and parabolic. And maybe the perspectives, you come preloaded with a few perspectives just because like, oh, you know, I'm on my back. Oh, I'm on my side, right? Those things could all be the beginnings of perspectival capacity. And then we think perspectival capacity has things like fluidity, flexibility, and that's where focus and possibly attention live. And, or, or maybe not attention, like we're still, it's early days. Um, yeah, but, well, yeah, okay, so, there. So that, but that's still not quite what I'm trying to get at. And maybe I shouldn't have brought in the aspect of the baby being preloaded. We could leave that aside just for the sake of discussion and not, because if you get into that, then that raises a lot of flags for people. But so let's leave that off. And let's just say, just, I mean, I came to a realization of this when I probably hit the age of 42 or something. Wait, the world is so complex and I see the world so differently than other people see the world. And, oh, this is why I see the world that way, right? This is probably 30 years ago, this occurred to me because of a particularly difficult breakup. And, uh, and, and I was like, Oh, it's so complex because I see the world through this filter. My filter is very, very complicated and completely unique to me. Nobody else, not another single person in the world sees the world the way I do, which means that other people see the world slightly different than I do. And that's where all our warring comes in, right? <laughs> because yeah. we have a different... Um, well, to use the just totally dumb terminology, we're all carrying different baggage. Right. But it's not even baggage, it's, it's the furnishings of my home and it's the, the architecture of my home and it's the reasons that it's the kind of clothes that I have in my closet. It's the furnishings of my life and the way that I've made choices in my life and what those choices have resulted in and how that's caused me to think about things. And so, so when you're talking to me, I'm hearing you through my filter mm -hmm. and I'm taking what you're saying and it's making connections inside my filter and creating a certain kind of meaning to me. And right. then when I try to articulate back to you what I'm hearing, it's going through my filter again and then it's going through your filter. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. It's a miracle right. that we can ever communicate anything to each other. But what's yeah. that thing that, that's made up of all these experiences? What is that thing? 
Yeah, I think that's part of your perspectival capacity, right? Okay. I think this is where this is where John and you know sort of gets upset. I think because he in in some of the uh, papers that he's uh, shown to us, he wrote rewrote up something when we first talked to him about this. Manuel and I were on a call with him, and he was, you know, he's like, ah, oh, you know, I'm not sure I like this idea, right? And um, in his model, he has what it's like to be and and you know i think that might be part of it like that this whole idea and i don't think that's a type of knowing i think being comes first and so you know you can't you can't it's a fine line right you can't kind of cross that that threshold and well, so i got interested in your thing that jess showed me is that this makes a whole lot more sense to me because if this perspectival capacity is this Velcro thing that's inside of me that's attaching different kinds of knowledge that is coming into me, then yes. this is connecting to all these different kinds of knowing. You can't yes. you can't separate out these kinds of knowing because everything that I know right now that is my structure has come from all of these different ways of knowing. Exactly right so, exactly yeah that's why this makes more sense any new proposition that i hear goes through this filter first i mean i you know right what i'm pointing at goes through this filter first everything goes bottom up proposition goes in here yep and then goes it into the perspective out and make a procedure or it might come back out and cause a participation but it's going through right. this thing right here first yeah, it's got to go through the perspectival capacity to become a, it's like raw signals come into the perspectival capacity from the bottom. They get put in formation with other signals, other things that you know, right? Other, you know, other structures you have in there, right? And then a dance happens, right? This is the opponent processing, which I think is rationalization. The more I think about it, the more I like this idea. I think that's rationalization where Something's got to change maybe if you've got new information or if you looked at the same information in a new way. Like suppose you gained a new, so perspectival fluidity, the way I've been thinking about it, um, you know, and I have a lot of help with it. We're thinking about these things, fortunately, because I'm not smart enough to do this by myself, you know, is, is something like, you know, you've got this frame and you're moving around in it, right? That's your fluidity, your ability to move around within the frame. But then if the information that you've gotten doesn't fit with the information that you have, or it, you know, it bounces up against the frame or wants to be, you know, heard, that's when you rationalize. You say, oh, that information's not important. Like that video has been debunked, you know, or or you know, that didn't happen. This person didn't say that, even though, you know, they they did, right? <laughs> they said that rather clearly, right? And they're, oh, it's out of context, even though it's not. Like, it's not out of context, no, right? And and that's where the rationalization happens. And, and the perspectival capacity is the lenses that you have. I'm not saying you only have one, right? You probably have a bunch, but, you know, it's it, we have to simplify things, put them in the diagram. So th those two bump up against each other. Like what I know, maybe maybe new ways of looking at what I know versus, you know, what 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 I already think about the world. And, you know, that that's going back and forth. And, and maybe when you tie your perspectives too closely to your ego, you run into trouble, right? And then maybe like when you're meditating, for example, you're very, you're participating with yourself and you're looking for patterns. Actually, John talks about this in the meditation series, looking for patterns. And maybe that helps you get perspectival flexibility. 
right? Because maybe flexibility comes from options. And maybe options come from participation in, in, in parabolic ways of knowing, right? Let because me, we think they're parabolic a, in nature. Let me throw another little thing in here from art that, that um, is worth reflecting on. When you're teaching an artist how to design their composition, you talk about your, your, you can choose either an open composition or a closed composition. A closed composition, the subject is entirely inside the frame. Okay, and an open composition, and you've seen paintings like this where maybe there's a figure inside the frame, but, but part of their head is outside the frame and part of one arm is outside the frame and part of one leg is outside the frame. So when you look at the picture, you have to fill in the missing pieces. Okay, a lot of more contemporary art is done that way where the, the object moves outside the frame and leaves the viewer the job of filling in the missing pieces. And, and I think that that's partly what happens here is that when a person has an ideology that they're in the grip of, they're living inside of a closed composition. There's no way, there's no way out of the frame, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the closed world, right? So if you, if you make everything propositional and procedural, you're gonna create a closed world. And then most of your perspectival capacity is going to prefer that because it's got good strong signals. Oh, look at this closed world, it's comfortable. It seems to be knowable, right? But then the dark side of that is, oh, it's comfortable, but you have no options and nothing you do in the world matters because it's closed mm -hmm. and it's a zero sum game. So really, you know, you're, you can do anything, on one hand, you're free to do whatever you want. On the other hand, you have no agency because it's a closed world, right? Mm -hmm. You're not co-creating because the only way you can create is to participate. And so when you get into something like meditation, you're shifting your perspectival capacities, uh, ability to balance itself back with the possibilities, with the reciprocal opening, right? And say, oh, okay, you know, there's participation. I can co-create. There are these patterns. And if I follow the patterns, I can make more for myself, right? There's this, there's this Pareto curve, right? That's, Pareto curve is a very parabolic thing, right? That's all sensing the, the you know, and, and it, it's weird, right? Peterson talks about this. There's the Pareto principle. Nobody knows about it, right? So Taleb talks about it, but like very few other people actually like talk about how it interacts with the world. Well, I got, Pareto, think, I got thinking about this the other day and I think this is, I, I would love, maybe we could have another conversation about this next time because I would love to explore this with somebody because the idea is so big, it's beyond my cognitive capacity. There's a thing in art where, um, okay, the, the eight principles of art are unity, harmony, contrast, dominance, repetition, variation, gradation, and balance. And um, unity can only be had when there is also dominance. You can't have, so every painting is made up of the seven elements, line, size, shape, direction, color, value, and texture. But you want to aim for unity, but you're also aiming for contrast. So how can that be? Unity, harmony, contrast, dominance is the secret. You have to have dominance. You have to have dominance of something. Otherwise it won't hold together. And I started um, thinking about, oftentimes people will talk about dominance of color. So you'll see a painting that will be maybe dominantly blue and then there'll be some beautiful gold 
gold and uh, orange passage in there that catches your eye because of the mostly blue, right? So the dominance is there to form the, the display case for the focal point. Um, but I, I was thinking about that in terms of the Pareto principle, because everybody thinks that the Pareto principle is such a bad thing because money tends to accumulate in just a few hands. But maybe that's the churn. Maybe that's the thing that keeps the churn going because if money didn't accumulate in a few hands, then there wouldn't be the upward aim of some people to, to get in on the game and then get them churning so that they move up towards the top. And then some of those people that are at the top fall back down to the bottom, but because that aim is there, they can churn back up. So, so the Pareto principle is somehow that dominance that's in the system that, that gives a potential for unity. Because if it weren't there at all, if, if everything is equal, there can never be unity. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, there's no dominance. Yeah, and it's interesting to me that when you talk to people about the Pareto Principle who say have certain uh, political ideology, um, or especially people who are into the equity, right, die, <laughs> right, if the die people, when you talk to them and you explain the Pareto Principle and you're like, no, 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 this is, it's not money, it's talent, it's the formation of stars in the universe, right? It's, you know, every scientific principle you ever heard, they all follow this Pareto curve. And they can't wrap their head around it. Yeah. The Pareto principle is parabolic. It's mm -hmm. literally parabolic. <laughs> so it's like, oh, they don't have access to the parabolic way of thinking. They just don't understand that way of knowing about the world, maybe because they're not participating or maybe something's damaged the parabolic and they can't participate. Well, We're kind you, of up in the air read, as to have which. Have you read Ian McGilchrist? I haven't. I've, I've seen summaries of his work. I saw his a few of his YouTube talks. Very smart guy. I mean, Struan was informed by McGill Crisp. So, you know, Paul talks about him, right? Uh -huh. A lot well, of these people his, talk about him. His big thematic thing that he's working on, which you have to read the whole book to get it, but his big idea is that something has happened in the evolution of the brain so that the left brain, the left hemisphere of the brain has become too dominant and the right hemisphere of the brain, which is this participatory parabolic thing, has gotten weakened in its ability to... Um... So the right hemisphere, according to him, is where all knowledge first enters into the brain. Mm -hmm. The left hemisphere doesn't have access to the sensory apparatus. Right. The right hemisphere brings in the new potential and then hands it off to the left hemisphere that begins processing and making structures and doing things with it, you know, the propositional, the procedural. And the left hemisphere is supposed to hand it back to the right hemisphere for the rest of this processing. <laughs> but the left hemisphere has, in his mind, and he looks through all the history of thought and the history of science and the neuro, neuro neuroscience he looks through all of that and he comes to the conclusion that the left hemisphere has gotten weaker and weaker at handing it back to the right side and is just holding on to that and that's why that's why structures are getting atomized and just becoming more and more propositional and 
putting a finer, mm -hmm. finer point on everything and why we've gotten intersectionalized and all of those things is all because the left hemisphere has gotten too powerful. So that's a big, and you could say it's kind of a weird idea, but um, it when you start reading the neuroscience behind it, you can see that there are a lot of things that that the right hemisphere, and I, it kind of roughly maps onto the the symbolic view of the feminine and the masculine, because Jordan uh, Jonathan Peugeot says that the feminine, the role of the feminine is to pose is to frame the question. Mm -hmm. Feminine frames the question and the masculine looks for the answer. And that's kind of the way he talks about it when he talks about the right hemisphere being the exploratory hemisphere and the left hemisphere is the, the, um, the, the right hemisphere is, is always searching the horizon to see if there are prey around and the left hemisphere is to either be the predator or to get rid of the prey and and so the left hemisphere is very active and the right hemisphere is very exploratory so um anyway that's a perspective i didn't know if you had heard about yet yeah i heard a little bit about that i you know we can go back to sort of the synthetic clothing thing, right? And this fact that walking barefoot makes a difference, a measurable difference. And say, what if we've just lost participation with the earth directly, right? And then like, now we're into Mary Cohen territory. Have you been listening to some of the Barfield videos? I, I, no, I haven't. I'm, I'm a little familiar, but like Mary Cohen talks about this, right? Okay. Like feeding the chickens and stuff. And it's like, well, yeah, when you have a participation with the cycles of nature, right? Or even the divine feminine, and maybe it's a loss of the divine feminine uh, through direct participation with nature and maybe through some other thing, like, you know, Jordan Peterson sort of at one point, I think hints at, you know, oh, what about birth control? Like, what did that do? I don't know. What did that do? It did something. Like it didn't do nothing because women couldn't have children. So when they're on it, so I mean, it does something. But what else does it do? Because we only know, you know, we only know what we think it does. We don't know all the things that it does because that science doesn't work that way. And fair enough. Like science is not equipped to do that sort of work. Science is like, oh, we have a theory, and we're going to put it to a test or a bunch of tests and ensure that it's not wrong. Okay, but what are all the other impacts? Like, did, can you even look at that? Because I don't, I, you know, maybe you can't, right? That's where the law of unintended consequences comes in. So maybe, you know, birth control and not being outside barefoot or, you know, wearing, you know, funky clothing. Now, now I want to change my shirt. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe all of that has weakened the signals from the continuous processing side of your brain that does the pattern, the invariant pattern recognition. And if you don't know a variant pattern from an invariant pattern, you're just going to fall from order to chaos, in my opinion. And we see that happening in the world. So it's kind of a strange coincidence at that point, right? Like, and then, you know, our perspectives also play into this. And it's like, well, we're so able to sit at home. And, you know, the other day I needed to go get groceries and it was late at night. And I said, I'm just going to go to a place that will give me prepared food and take it home and eat it. And I'll deal with the groceries tomorrow, <laughs> right? Because we can't, like, I have that option. I can just 
like it's eight bucks, man. You go down to Bojangles, have some excellent chicken and, uh, you know, be happy. And you don't have to go out to the store and, and do all that bother right now. You can leave it for the daylight, which I did. And I regret it because there's people at the supermarket in the day. Ugh. So it was very crowded. Uh, but, but, you know, you have that option. In the old days, you didn't have that option. You had to prepare food, you know, especially like I grew up in New England. You had to prepare food all year, man, because in the winter, you ain't getting none. So you better have it ready. It's got to be jarred and jerky and, you know, whatever else. Like you have to prepare your stores. Otherwise, you're in, you're in trouble. Like you're going to die, literally going to die. And in the modern world, we don't, we don't have any of those problems. You can just hop in the car and, and go, get, go get Wendy's. Um, you know, it, it's great. But 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 now we don't have that participation with the planning and anticipation and this long-term relationship with you know connecting our health and well-being with what we're participating in, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how does Wendy's affect your health? Well, it sounds like there's some immediate proximal causes, um, <laughs> despite the deliciousness. I mean, I would say it's still a step up from McDonald's. I'm, you're not you're not getting me out of Wendy's. I love Wendy's, but. Um, yeah, it, you know, it's it's interesting that we have those options and then we have this problem at the same time. Well, so we have a few minutes left. Um, and, and while we have those few minutes, since you haven't quite got down to the bottom here yet, what is this bit about the static and the dynamic and the material less control and ephemeral more control? Can you put yeah. that in order for us? Sure, that's an Easter egg. So one of the things <laughs> that... Uh, that John talks about in the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series, he starts with an axiom, really, uh, a couple of them, right? But, but the most important one for me is he says, we can no longer live in a two worlds mythology. And uh, Paul Vanderclay came over to, Paul's so great, he's so wonderful, right? He came over to the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis Discord because he had been talking to John and we, we try to get those people on for Q&A on the Discord. John, John does a Q&A uh, you know, every month for us, for example. Um, and I asked Paul, I said, hey, what do you think of this two worlds mythology thing? And he gave me a very unsatisfying answer, uh, but, a, but a very good one, a very honest answer, which is, yeah, I think it's way bigger than anybody realizes. And I, because I, 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 I didn't like that idea. And, and it occurred to can me you, that maybe- Can you tell me what the two worlds mythology is very quickly? Sure, sure. So it, it occurs to me that maybe the two worlds mythology, because the Greeks didn't conceive of it that way, doesn't exist. It's a scientific construction that, there's the spiritual realm and then there's the material realm but oh. that's a very scientific construction right like the the ancient greeks didn't see those as different things they saw them as a continuum i think and so that's what this represents is this idea that there's the material realm and we actually you know a lot of people immediately bristle they're like no we have full control over material things it's the ephemeral things that we can't touch that we have no control over but actually like here's a cup and there's some things, there's a bunch of things I can't do with the cup. If the cup is in my head and I imagine it, I can turn it into a dragon. So I would say that's more control because I turn this cup into a dragon. Because if I could, I love dragons, I would have a dragon. But I don't have a dragon because I can't turn the cup into a dragon. I can't conjure a dragon. In the eph ephemeral realm, you can. You can just like in your imagination, you can call up whatever you want. You have way more control over that in some sense. And then I think there's a dichotomy between smaller and larger. So larger material things you have less control over 
than smaller material things that say you can grasp. But there's a similar relationship. I mean, a bar is probably not the right way to express it, right? It's probably like a gradiated circle or something. Some things in your imagination you have more control over and some things in your imagination you seem to have less control over. And some of that might be psychological, but some of it might be physiological. Uh, some people don't seem to, or at least report that they don't have imagination. They can't see pictures in their heads. Right. Some people can't hear things in their heads. They don't. They, some people only dream in black and white. Some people don't have dreams. So, you know, it's a weird relationship. But generally speaking, it's to resolve this this two worlds mythology thing that John is on about. I think it's, it's yeah, there aren't two worlds. It's one world. But the one world contains material and ephemeral things. And as I was saying earlier, maybe that's what shadow projection is. Right. Like maybe maybe when you have a view of the world in your head that doesn't match reality. You try to make reality match it. And then you'll do strange things like bash your head against the wall repeatedly. And you know, you may say, well, that's futile. Well, not really, because if enough people are bashing their head against the wall over a long enough period of time, the wall will fall. So that's sort of, you know, it's not a direct relationship. That's sort of like your version of reality in your head impinging upon reality because you're a co-creator whether you like it or not and if you're not engaged with co-creation if you're not participating with the world around you and you a don't have a good sense of it and so you could bash your head against the, the, the you know the red brick wall of reality as i like to call it um but b you could actually have a, a negative impact and i think again this goes back to falling from order to chaos when you ignore the ephemeral the things the dynamic things in the world the 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 things that are that are true, but we can't point to because they're non-material, you lose the way of creating structure because creating structure is something like putting parabolic pieces together, right? In ways that fit as opposed to ways that don't. And so that's the emanation of structure in your head to match the structure in the real world, in the material world. And that also enables you to create materials. So, I'm going to point you to a video from a guy by the name of Carl Friston, who's working on um, well, he's working on an idea called the free energy principle. Because mm, I, I think all these that. things map over scientifically, right? So yes. I'm going to point you to his video because I think there's something very important happening there relative to what you just said. But I, I want to also say that um, a couple of things. One is that for me, rather than it being a linear thing, there's this mathematical paradox called, or maybe it's a geometric paradox called it Tanakh-Barsky. Oh yeah, I think I know what you're talking about, yeah. Where, where if you have a sphere, you, you can take that sphere apart in a certain way and actually uh, construct two spheres out of the pieces. Or you can take the sphere apart and actually construct a much larger sphere out of the pieces from the smaller sphere. And when they, when they describe it and they show exactly how it's done, when you actually look at how it's done using points in space, you can actually see where two spheres can occupy the same space at the same time. And each of them is made up of, of a set of points, but those set of points are 
discrete somehow in this same space. That's the way I see the material and spiritual world. We're in the same space. It's almost like uh, alternate universes or something. And if you're just out of phase, you can move into the other one. And you're in phase, you're in this one, right? Yeah. It's all in the same space. Yeah, right? that's how the ancients thought about it. That's where Halloween comes from right like halloween is when the veil between those two worlds is at its is at its oh. Uh, weakest oh i know i never i never heard that yeah I, a lot of these things i'm like you i i don't know ancient philosophy i never studied any philosophy i never studied any of these things until i started reading jordan peterson i just know how i have always seen the world and how it makes sense to me and and as a as a christian believer it's never been two worlds to me ever. I mean, ever mm -hmm. since Christ became a part of my world when I was 30, I mean, ever since Christ became my world when I was 30, I should say, it's, it's, it's seamless. There's not, you know, it would be easier if I could just say, oh yeah, that's my Christian life. I'll go over here and do my other life, you know? <laughs> but that's not really the way it is. It's, it's all one thing. And, uh, and, I forget what the other point I was going to make, but oh, that, and maybe we can end with this. There, there's a, there's another kind of knowing that um, N. T. Wright talks about, uh, Esther Meeks talks about. They both get some of it from Michael Polanyi, who was a scientist. But it's this idea of knowing being a love relationship, and. And it's way too much to go into their approach as to how they get there. Maybe that's for another video. But what occurred to me just the other day that simplified it in my mind, it just went, oh, bingo, there it is. Is that, you know how Jordan Peterson always says, you have to make friends with the unknown rather than making friends with the known. This right here is the knowledge that we have. Mm -hmm. This is what we're working with. This is our, our known knowledge. But in the next moment in front of me is the unknown. It's all unknown. It's right. uh, and the way Jordan Peterson talks about it is it's this field of infinite possibility. And there's no way to make yourself make your way through the field unless you have a frame, unless you have a, a an aim, unless you have a you know have path, all of that kind of stuff. But here I am right now. The next moment is in front of me. All of those next moments are potential revelation to me of reality, God, truth, all of those things are there in the unknown. And if I approach it with a love, with a recognition that if what is available to be re revealed to me is coming from love and if i move into it with love then i have a capacity to know in a much deeper richer way that's interesting yeah maybe that's participation with a particular aim or something right with the with the with the reciprocal opening aim of of uh of well john would call it moreness right approaching it with moreness rather than suchness right that that potential that possibility yeah it's very concurrent ideas but there's I definitely all, something there i think all of these 
forms of knowing come out of that. Because one of the examples that Esther Meek uses is, let's say you have a rose bush and you don't know how to take care of a rose bush. The best way to get to know how to take care of a rose bush is to approach the rose bush. I mean, this sounds weird, but approach it with love. Mm. I care about this rose bush. I want the rose bush to thrive. I observe, I, I attend, I pay careful attention. What helps it to thrive? I try some things. If it helps it to thrive, fine. If it doesn't help it to thrive, then I'm not gonna do that anymore. And I, and I build this participatory relationship with the rose bush as I'm working on it and I'm learning from that. And out of that experience of learning to work with the rose bush, certain principles or propositions lodge themselves in my brain. Oh, when I do X, Y happens. And, and, I, and out of those propositions, I build a procedure. I'm gonna help the rose bush in this. Somehow this ground of history that you say we're standing on the shoulders of giants that we're standing on are people that moved into the unknown step by step in this participatory way. And, and out of that, they built the parabolic. I mean, out of that, these, these stories, these patterns developed. And out of that, these procedures and propositions were gained step by step. So now they're all underneath us, right? It's all that standing on the shoulders of giants is there. But for every human person, there's always the next moment. And the next moment, how are you going to approach it? There's one, only one fruitful way to approach it. And that is, and Jordan Peterson talks about when you speak the truth, if you have a confidence that what will come from speaking truth is good, no matter what it looks like to you, may not look good. You might get thrown in the gulag. But if you believe it's good, then your basic belief is that being is good. And that's going to change who you are as an individual. And that basic belief that being is good is that walking into the next moment, believing that it is love that's coming at you. And you make your choices based on a reciprocal love. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. John has a uh, somewhat famous episode of Awakening from the Meaning Crisis where he goes into agape, which is one version of the ancient Greeks idea of love. Mm -hmm. And I think he links agape to the ground of being, right? And I think, yeah, that's very, all these ideas are very close. If they're not the same, they're very, very close. And yeah, I think, I think if you approach the world to your point with agape and you're willing to participate with it, those invariant patterns, the good patterns, we'll call them, right? The patterns that are invariant in scale through time and, and maybe through, through you know, whatever dimensional uh, hierarchy you want to place them in. Uh, you know, that's all that'll help you because you stand on the historical grounding, on the ground of being, we'll say, right? Between, between that, that history and the future, which is pure potential to Peterson's point. That's where you are at all times. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you have to aim for the good, right? You have to understand it and you, and you have to love the past too. You can't mm -hmm. just destroy it. You can't break down history because the historical facts don't fit your perspective of how the world has unfolded, right? You, you, you've got to meet it all with love to your point. I, I really like that. I
Well, that's the looping thing, right? The, the ground underneath us is, is good being and the aim that we're aiming for is good being and then it's always looping back and looping back. This has been an absolutely fascinating time. Uh, I've so much enjoyed picking your brain and learning from you. And, uh, and I hope that we can get more feedback on the on this uh, idea of yours. I kind of like this, I, my, I'm, like I said, I'm not very good with philosophy, but the idea that this might be rationality going on in here, that's a very interesting thing I'm gonna percolate on for a while. <laughs> yeah, oh, me too. I came up with it like three hours ago. So I've been like, oh wait, and then I have to have a talk. What do I do? But yeah, it's been, it's been lovely. I've learned a lot from you too. So I've really appreciated the, the, the time and care and I really like your channel. So. Well, I will I will link to some of the Barfield videos that we've done on part, on uh, the loss of participation because you might find that interesting. And then I'll uh, if there's anything you want me to link to, send it to me. I shall. Thank Maybe you. Maybe if you have a what a, a docs link to this or something, we could put this in in the description I, as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I don't know if you can link things in, in the YouTube description, but on our website, uh, meaningcommunity.com, you can download this slide and kind of play with it yourself. And then uh, we'll okay. probably be updating it at some point. But yeah, it, that'll be available from the website that, that I'll give you. In the I'll link, link to that website. And, uh, and if you have any ideas of anything you would want to talk about in the future that you think might be an interesting aspect of any of these things you're playing with, let me know and we'll do another one. That sounds great. Thank you so much for okay. your time. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye.